This week on a very special episode of Derek Burroughs, MD. I need a test in here. Stat! Lives hang in the balance at St. Joseph of Cupertino Hospital as Derek must decide. How quickly can we test our medical devices? And how quickly should we? It isn't just about speeding up innovation or building new gadgets as fast as possible. Damn it, man, this isn't a rideshare app. These are people's lives we're talking about. A patient arrives with a rare find, an ultrasound machine that fits in the palm of his hand. This could change medical science as we know it, but we have to be sure it works first. And Derek must make a harrowing choice. I'm a doctor. I took an oath to heal the sick and do no harm. But what does that mean in a world with lightning fast innovation where patients want results at the speed of a tweet? How can I balance that with the Hippocratic Oath and make sure that every piece of tech that I put in my hands is used only for good? I'm Derek Burroughs. Stay tuned as we find out how TEST is driving and safeguarding the tools that save lives one patient at a time. This is a test. Ten, nine. One, two, three, one, two, three. Three, two, one. Alrighty then. And cough. <coughs> liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes. Testing one, two, three. Why Testing Matters, an original podcast from NI. Alive. It's alive. With Derek Burroughs. This is only a test. Life at St. Joe's <clears throat> and at other completely non-fictional hospitals, just like it all over the world, has changed dramatically in the last few years. Advances in medical technology have revolutionized our ability to diagnose diseases, treat injuries, and even look inside the human body with a degree of accuracy that would have been unheard of a few years ago. And with new technology comes, you guessed it, new test. But testing a medical device isn't like testing, say, a mixing board or a TV camera. When one of those goes down, it means a bad day on set. But if a pacemaker or an insulin pump breaks, it could cost someone their life. So how do you test something in an industry where the failure rate essentially has to be zero? And on the flip side, when we might be able to save someone's life with a new and unproven piece of technology, how do we get it evaluated and into the hands of the doctor as quickly as possible? Here's hoping my first patient of the day can give me some answers. Medical devices are just such a, a fascinating world. And I, I think we, we are continually increasing the amount of innovation that's out there. This is Kip Bradford. And according to his chart, he's on the faculty at the Harvard School of Engineering, teaches at their grad school of design, and is the founder of an air conditioner startup called Gradients. Cool. Plus, he has a lot of experience building and testing devices for the medical community. And the democratization of, of tools has led to a broader community of people who can address issues. And, and not everything is an FDA-regulated medical device. 
you can make a prosthetic limb that helps people without having to go through FDA scrutiny because, again, the risk to reward ratio, there's zero risk in a simple prosthetic limb and high reward for somebody who needs that. And I think there, there are things that are high impact, low risk that individual creative people can work on. Gosh, even something as simple as a, a wheelchair. There are a few classes in engineering schools scattered around the country that, that are looking at wheelchairs, but it's like they look so uncomfortable and clunky or, or a walker. Are there things that, that we interact with that look like boring technologies? That's another one of the things that I'm excited about. Like, are there things that are boring technologies that have a big impact on people's lives that we should spend more effort and more interest in rethinking and evaluating the design of? This explosion of innovation has been driven in part by so-called makers, tinkerers, hobbyists, and passionate degreed engineers who all got into the medical field when they saw there were needs that weren't being met. And, you know, because it looked cool. Then on the other side of the innovation coin are patients, taking a greater interest in personalizing their experiences with their doctors. After all, in a world where you can order a pizza, hail a cab, and find the love of your life all on the same device, it makes sense that people would want more control over their medical histories, too. So combined all together, you can look at something like hearing aids. I had a hearing aid startup 14 years ago, and one of the things we'd actually use LabVIEW embedded and a analog devices DSP with the notion that we could automate the programming of a hearing aid. So you could play a series of different sounds that a person could respond to while showing them information on a display. And there's some lapse patents out on this practice, but this is something that people are doing now, where the system could see how the user was responding and then automatically adjust the tuning. And this was something that prior to that, had been done in an audiologist's office, a specialist who would do that tuning, would ascertain where your hearing was at and how your hearing was functioning, and then would set up your hearing aid tunings for you. And that skill and the expertise that humans have developed over many decades is something that we've embedded in, in expert systems. You know, it's, it's like airplane autopilots weren't just created from scratch. They were created by understanding the behaviors of many, many, many pilots under many situations and then creating a set of heuristics that represent the best practices. We can do that in a device like a hearing aid. We can do that in a device like an insulin pump today. We have the embedded computation ability to be able to do the, the logic and computation that you need to convert the knowledge that, that we've accumulated into the function and behavior of a device that lets the device's user interact with it at a higher level. You know, you don't necessarily want the person tinkering with their hearing aid at the level of messing with all the settings and messing with the noise cancellation behaviors, but you can give them these higher level functional modules that allow them to, to get the behaviors that they want, that respond best to their body's needs. I was already impressed with the keen eye for innovation I'd been seeing around the hospital when my next patient presented me with something that I had never seen before, an ultrasound device that he can run from his phone. The intention is to get every doctor to have one. You know, their $2,000 sounds a little expensive. It's actually quite cheap compared, you know, maybe a factor of 10 compared to these carts. Aaron Feldstein is the manager of tests at Butterfly Network. 
which means he's seen a lot when it comes to getting new technology into medical devices and then into the hands of people who need them. The reason we want every doctor to have it is just so that uh, they can make quick diagnoses without scheduling thing. It's it's cheaper, it's faster, especially in the ER type situations, you, you want to make that diagnosis quick. One of our key metrics is how fast does this thing turn on? We need it to turn on an image, you know, immediately. So that way people aren't waiting, you know, bleeding out or something uh, on the floor. And uh, the image quality is actually quite good. So even for this small device, we have uh, a MEMS technology that enables us to take Uh, high-quality pictures with a small form factor. With their recurring role in pregnancy scenes from corny daytime TV hospital dramas, it's easy to forget what a medical marvel an ultrasound really is. The power to look into the human body, completely non-invasively, is incredible. But even then, there are lots of places, places where they're badly needed, that traditional ultrasounds just can't go. And that's where the ability to innovate comes into play. The cart has the same imaging capabilities as the handheld one, but you can't bring a cart to, say, the battlefield, or you can't bring a cart to third world countries that don't have the infrastructure to to hold, you know, 220 volts and a lot of amperage and that kind of thing. So this allows you to to do emergency diagnosis on the battlefield or uh, in an ambulance, for example, if you're, you know, trying to run out to to a scene of an accident, you can do quick diagnoses that way. So it's really the, the capability of where you can bring this that you couldn't bring a cart. I know this is also, we can use basically the same device for veterinary type things. So, you know, horses or even small animals, the same form factor is used. So it's much easier to get out into a field with this than a, an ultrasound cart. If everyone's got access to these more portable devices, presumably the data is quite accessible as well. How much education needs to happen to make it so that every doctor can understand the kind of ultrasound data that they're using? One of the issues that we we actually have to tackle is we we want to get this in more people's hands, but you have to make sure that they are capable of making the right diagnoses there. So our our software actually has a lot of AI-type situations in it where it can, for example, it'll tell you exactly how full the bladder is if you just point it at the bladder. You don't have to make that volume call yourself. You don't even have to point to the screen and figure out the the size of the bladder. It will say, this is how much urine you have. That was the first thing I did, actually, when I got my hands on this. It was uh, (laughs) pretty neat to see, you know, before and after you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an, the incredible tool for any parent's road trip. It's like, listen, do you yeah, have to go you. now? And they say, no, pull out the ultrasound, confirm before you get into the next uh, three-hour stretch. There you go. I, I should say you do have to have a license to use an ultrasound, so you ah. can even buy this from our website. Um, but yes, <laughs> we are looking at things like locking out some features from from some people and just giving the ultrasound to, say, a catheter nurse that only does catheter type things. Right. But yeah, we also have a whole enterprise software package where you can, uh, well, you do upload some of your pictures. I think it's stripped of all names and it's made anonymous, basically. And then people can help you make diagnosis on our cloud system. That sounds amazing, especially for, for regions that might not have a whole lot of expertise in the imaging field. You might be able to connect people who are very experienced with people who are using ultrasound for the very first time. There you go. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's amazing, these tools we have today that go places their predecessors couldn't and do things their predecessors can't. And that tech wouldn't be here without someone, a lot of someone's actually, imagining a thing that didn't exist yet and making it a reality. 
but evaluating these devices, making sure they're both effective and safe, can set up a tortoise and a hare problem. Test too slowly, and you might not get it to someone who needs it in time. But test too quickly, or skip your test entirely, as a recent high-profile scandal has shown us, and you just might be flirting with disaster. The domain that Theranos was playing in and performing fraud in is one that just had a different kind of impact on people's health and lives. And I think that is a failure in my mind, really, of the regulatory process where I don't know enough of the details to understand how they were able to to get around some of the regulatory scrutiny or what they did to get around the regulatory scrutiny. That should be a moment of introspection for regulators and, and for Congress people, for our, our legislators who empower regulators to make sure those sorts of things don't happen. You know, think about how many people might have gotten bad data from Theranos who made medical decisions based on that bad data and, and what the consequences were. We should all be ashamed of, of ourselves in the regulatory community just not being able to have, again, that, that gatekeeping process in place, whether it was political or just underhanded dealings or what. And the startup community, like the investors got dazzled by it. And, you know, I think everyone was just dazzled by it and yeah. and dazzled by the personality. Yeah. And I think there was a, a general feeling of, you know, oh, well, testing will come. FDA approval will come. But we're moving too fast to make those part of our decision making process for my big investment or for my big deal that I'd like to sign. Which is okay as long as those machines aren't used before they're tested. Again, looking at the aviation industry, it's sort of like saying, well, we're just going to build these airplanes and we're not going to go through the FAA approval process, but we're going to start flying customers on them. It's like you just don't see that as much. Testing devices to make sure they stack up to regulations is crucial when it comes to keeping people safe. But getting life-saving technology approved takes time which is something that patients don't always have. So how do we walk the fine line between testing too much and testing too little, especially when those tests can mean the difference between life and death? Derek Burroughs, MD, will return after this word from our sponsors. Is your test not what it used to be? Are you fed up with the frustrating opacity of human skin? Tired of lackluster diagnostic techniques and patients who won't even let you make one simple cut into their abdomen to just poke around a little bit and see what's up? Now there's a better way. Now there's Phantom Body. So can you help us define what is a a Phantom Body and how do they come into this? Well, it's used for training mostly for uh, people to get ultrasounds, but it is a fake body. It has the same speed of sound to simulate a human body. It's like a gel. Uh, Some of them are quite creepy looking, actually. Uh, When I walked into Butterfly one night when I was working late, I saw just it's like this fetus in a tube just clear in one of the closets. Scared me. Phantom Body is a life-saving diagnostic tool that allows you to test the veracity of your ultrasound equipment without the hassle of bones, organ tissue, and other body parts your patients may hold dear getting in your way. So we press these things against a phantom and they have, like I said, targets in them. And then Mm. we analyze that image that we take with deep learning. And it says, oh, this is 
analysis to a perfect image or this isn't your best probe you've ever made and we get kind of a score off that and then we we pass or fail it so phantom body works in minutes to give you an accurate validation of your diagnostic equipment without needing to concern yourself over the fleeting impermanence of human mortality so a phantom body just has different human simulations that you you, you can probe with our probe or you know any ultrasound device and learn how to image the best with it we actually use these in production so we put like fake targets behind it and uh, use some deep learning to make sure when it finds these targets that the image quality looks as good as it can uh, before it goes out to the, the doctors that sounds like a hell of a testing implement to have. Uh, and also, I Googled it and I regret it because the closest <laughs> comparison I can draw, it's like a human skeleton was wrapped in the stuff they make Coca-Cola gummies out of. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Stifle your horror at its appearance and ask your doctor if Phantom Body is right for you. Do not use Phantom Body without a license. Do not take Phantom Body for the purpose of hijinks or practical jokes. Do not search Phantom Body online as doing so may haunt your dreams forever. Oh no, the new I looked at the newborn. Oh, oh yeah, god, its little that's tiny skull is horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your test deserves better than the puny frailty of human flesh. Your test deserves phantom body. In the medical world, innovation and regulation can often look like opposites one racing ahead and trying to test as fast as possible, the other moving carefully and deliberately, testing every last little detail before real humans are involved. But the funny thing is, especially when it comes to the FDA, the two are actually fairly harmonious. So the fundamental aspect of what the FDA does is looks for safety and efficacy of a medical thing. So you, you have to demonstrate that, that the thing that you're manufacturing will not harm the patient, or there's a, a very well understood risk to reward ratio. Like, you know, obviously a chemotherapeutic agent is something that does harm the patient, but also is supposed to reduce the cancer. So the overall reward is much, much greater than the risk and the harm that's done. So it's, it's not that the FDA looks and says, well, there's zero harm. It's like, I mean, even with like COVID vaccinations, you know, there's some de minimis amount of side effects, but a massive amount of benefit. So you can look at that and say, okay, there's, there's a great, much greater benefit than there is risk. So that's one of the key functions that the FDA plays. And then the, the second function is looking at the efficacy. It doesn't matter if there's zero risk to your COVID drug or your hearing aid if there's also no benefit. So you want to understand what are the benefits, how does it affect people, and then quality control. So how uniform are your manufacturing processes? What's what's the variation in performance of the things that you're creating? So all of those things, I think, are uniform across the things that the FDA looks at. I, I've never taken a drug through FDA approval, so I can't talk to that as an expert, but as sort of a biomedical engineer slash thermal engineer who's done regulatory review on different products, there's some fundamental things that people are looking at and safety and efficacy and repeatability and quality fall into those bins. So if you're going to develop a product, 
you as the manufacturer want to also know that you have a safe and effective product for your customers. I mean, it's just good business. So in the development process, you know, testing plays such a key role because you start off with your specifications. You, you want this thing that you're creating to have a certain set of performance and behaviors, and you list those things out. And if you're smart about it, when you start developing, you also test in parallel. So you're always validating that the thing that you're creating meets the specifications, meets the performance criteria, and is safe. So you're developing tests to do that validation, you're collecting the data, and at the end of, of that process, one would hope, and again, it varies from company to company, one would hope that you have a good set of data that validates your assumptions, that proves the quality and performance of the product, that proves its safety, and you also, in parallel, have a suite of tests that you've run. So when... A regulatory agency looks at your data, they can look at not only the tests that you've run, but the results of those tests. And if your tests are inadequate, they can let you know that. But you know, they can also use your tests as a basis, especially if it's a new technology, for the tests that they're going to apply. And I think that's that's one of the important things that that you get this mutual benefit. It's like, well, here's what we've done to demonstrate the effectiveness and safety and and quality internally. Here's the tools and tests. Here's the data. You hand that off to the regulatory body. They do all their review. And then they can use your testing equipment. They can use your testing processes as well as their own. And they can go back to you and validate the things that you're doing so that you can demonstrate that continuous quality control that's a requirement for good manufacturing practices to be able to carry those products into the marketplace. Aaron agrees. When it comes to regulation, test not only ensures safety, but drives innovation too. The amount of tests that we have to do, especially in validation, things you wouldn't even think of. You know, I came from the microphone world. We made microphones for like things like cell phone. We didn't care about temperature or how it irritates your skin or how much it would hurt your hand if you held it for a, a long period of time. It just, you have to be thinking of everything that could possibly go wrong and you have to test for, for all that especially when it's in the medical world. You can't have a probe not boot up the first time quickly. It can't boot up, you know, 95% of the time. It has to boot up every single time. It has to charge every single time. It has to, you have to make sure that when you take it off that it's going to be a charged device and that, uh, you know, you don't have to go trying to find your, your second probe or get some, borrow someone else's, especially if you're in an ambulance and trying to figure this out. So just the, the amount of tests and situations you have to test for makes it more difficult than a normal device, so. I'm sure acceptable failure rates uh, really drop to basically nothing when it comes to medical devices. Yes, exactly. When combined correctly, the innovation of a 10x startup culture and the constraints of regulation don't have to add up to zero. In fact, it could result in the democratization of medicine as we know it. I think we just have to be realistic about the fact that on the one hand, medical devices, like there are people who are, are desperate for pre-approved, potentially life-saving treatments that have not gone through the lengthy and important regulatory review process. That situation, I think, is something that, that we have mechanisms for that are not necessarily the best mechanisms, but, but they do allow for this rapid innovation and rapid development and then 
the application of, of that innovation to, to treat people who might be desperately in need. But again, it's this risk to reward ratio. Like we think you're going to die in six months and here's this thing that might extend your life. Should we try it out? You know, that, that is an ethical judgment. That is very, very different than, than saying we're going to just skip this review process because we think this is a cool technology. The Cavalier Silicon Valley, we're just going to disrupt everything attitude. It works in some industries, but again, we have the gatekeeper for a reason. So the consequences of making bad decisions when it comes to safety, that freezes innovation. So we have mechanisms that you might feel like, oh, this slows things down, but it's really like, let's go a little slower so we can go faster. Here in my hospital, TESS serves two roles, moving our technology forward and keeping it safe. The end result is tools that are advanced enough to be groundbreaking, yet safe enough to be used universally without worrying about what might happen if it goes wrong. That's tech that's democratized. That's tech for everybody. We live in an age where all of our lives could one day depend on an ultrasound, a wheelchair, or an eerie gelatinous replica of a human infant. An age where physicians and engineers can maximize their skills to do the most good, and where a rapid and rigorous system of tests saves lives every single day. Because in the end, that's what being a fake TV doctor is all about. Until next time, I'm Derek Burrows, starring as Derek Burrows. Testing 123 is an original podcast from NI with Derek Burrows. To find out more, visit our webpage at ni.com.